This episode of Talking Indonesia was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. Merdeka! 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 The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. In recent years, the profile of Indonesian literature was given a substantial boost when it was featured at major international book fairs, including the 2015 Frankfurt Book Fair and the 2019 London Book Fair. Indonesian authors and their work were highlighted and given a special place within the cultural and commercial programs of these events, backed by funding from the Ministry for Education and Culture and the Agency for Creative Economy. It was hoped that an international boon for Indonesian literature would follow. Undeniably, the publication of work in English translation is imperative in order to achieve such a global reach and readership. In early March this year, Tiffany Zhao's translation of Bodhidharma's People from Bloomington, or Orang Orang Bloomington, won the prestigious Penn Translation Prize, potentially marking another significant moment for Indonesian literature internationally. So what does the future look like for Indonesian literature in translation? Who and what is being translated and published? And what expectations do publishers and readers have about the stories they will encounter. My guest today is Tiffany Zhao, author and translator of fiction and poetry, including the acclaimed short story collection, People from Bloomington. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Indonesia. Yeah, not at all. Uh, Thanks for having me, Gemma. Well, Tiffany, I think it might be a good place to start for our listeners if you can begin by telling us a little bit about who Bodhidharma is, what kind of writer was he, and what influence has he had on Indonesian literature and culture more broadly? Ooh, where do I start? Bodhidharma was, you know, well, obviously an Indonesian writer, but primarily, I mean, I guess most famously known for his absurdist short fiction, for being in general like a, a master of the short story form. And when I say absurdist, I mean he wrote novels in, I guess, uh, the absurdist vein in the context of Indonesia. So Indonesian absurdism being sort of an umbrella term that's used for Uh, experimental literature or literature that's sort of a bit unmoored from reality. So it doesn't contain like the same very specific social historical contexts that let's say uh, Pramudia's work does, right? And that's a good, I guess, contrast. And, you know, all of this is actually found in Intan Paramedita's excellent preface to the English translation of the collection, People from Bloomington. So um, I'd recommend people go there for a little bit more in-depth about where Bodhidharma's work sits in the context of Indonesian literature. But regarding the second question about what influence has he had, um, I think this is a little bit more, I don't want to say difficult. Like As a writer, I'm very aware there are pockets of influences. So there's no doubt that Bodhidharma was very influential on very many writers. This includes like Seno Gumira Ajidharma. Uh, Intan herself has been influenced. Uh, 
actually another author I translate, Norman Erickson Pasaribu. His style is very influenced by Woody Dharma's writing. So, you know, like, I don't know if I can say it had this effect on Indonesian literature and culture, like, for the ages to come. It wasn't like that, but I think it definitely had its its influence. I mean, culture and literature is not a, not a monolith, so you would expect there to be ripple effects and then certain types of writing or styles of writing that were more influenced uh, than others. You're citing examples of this more recent generations, but I guess, you know, he was came out of a community of writers at the time that really, really busy in the 70s and 80s, right? And Yes, that's right. So some of his contemporaries would be, just off the top of my head, Donato, Putuwijaya, Iwan Simatupang, like those were sort of the contemporaries and, and the other absurdist writers that he would be compared to. And he himself, you know, makes reference to those writers. Uh, Umar Kayam, actually, is another influence. And he's um, alluded to his work, A Thousand Fireflies in Manhattan. So that's alluded to in People from Bloomington. And he was also a, a teacher, a lecturer, right? So he, yes. so his students must have been influenced by him. That's right, tremendously so, I think, um, judging from what people said after his passing. So we know educators have that tremendous effect as well. Um, and he was also a literary critic, so that also had a very big effect as well. And he was very active up until the time of his passing. He was still teaching, even though he was technically retired and still, you know, very active communicator and still extremely sharp. And Tiffany, what what attracted you to his writing personally and, you know, you yourself as a writer? Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. I don't know. Do you want the long story or the short story? Um, Go the long. Okay, so the long story is I, as you know, Gemma, I used to be an academic and Indonesian literature was one of my areas of study. And I was doing a research project actually on literary production in East Kalimantan. And while I was doing that, I was sort of looking through essays in English literature and then also by Indonesian writers on the regional in literature. And this was, you know, sort of a movement that happened during the 80s, right? Uh, Sastra Daera, specifically literature that was not nostalgizing, but going back to, I guess, regional roots. So, you know, Javanese, Sundanese, Buginese, you know, those kinds of roots of the writers where writing in Indonesian had been seen as the modern, like, literature of the nation, the national literature. All of a sudden, then we were seeing in the 80s, especially, literature that was much more on, what is it, still written in Indonesian, but uh, sprinkling local terms or, you know, uh, phrases from different regional languages and set in those areas. So while I was doing that, I actually came across essays by Budi, by Budidharma, about the regional and the universal and like all of these essays about literature. And then interestingly, also about local color literature in America. And I was thinking like, oh, it's so interesting that he's writing all of these essays on different things. And these were published in the 80s. And so, you know, as one does, I photocopied like all of the essay collections. And then and then I came across mention of his two works set in Middle America. So one of them was Alenka, a novel, and that one is like very famous. And then the other one was Orang Orang Bloomington, the Bloomingtonians or people from Bloomington or however you want to translate it. And I thought to myself, these are so interesting. I would love to read these one day. But being an academic I was back then, I didn't have time to pursue this thing that I wanted to read. And I was like, I need to do these things I have to read. So I just put that on a shelf. So then fast forward to 2016, when I was no longer an academic because I decided to leave because of 
various things. And I was visiting my father in Jakarta and I was at a bookshop and I saw there was a new edition of Orang Orang Bloomington and it was right there on the table. And I was like, oh, it's on the display table. It's a new edition. And, you know, like, because older books can be really difficult to find. Like, usually it's just very difficult to find. You'd have to scour the used bookstores and, you know, like, it's just not a guarantee. But I was so excited because the short story collection that I'd heard of and had, you know, said, like, one day I'll read this was right there. So, of course, I bought a copy and then I read it and I was just so entranced by it like I couldn't put it down and even long afterwards the stories and the characters just stayed with me because they are haunting and I think they're like really creepy and weird but also strangely like you feel so much for certain characters you're like oh my goodness they're why are they doing this why are they doing yeah. this? and relatable too yeah exactly so and there was just so much about the stories that I really liked and I just they stuck in my head for a long time yeah and so then all of a sudden one day Norman Erickson Pasaribu, the author I translate, is also a very good friend of mine. I would keep saying, you know, oh, yeah, one day I want to translate this short story collection. And they would say... Ah, oh, so already, like, as soon as you started, you read them, you went, I must translate these. Yeah, kind of. Or I think I was still at the stage where I was like, maybe a translation exists, but we don't know. Like, how could a translation not exist? Because this is one of the more famous Indonesian right, writers. Right, because other, other works of his had been translated. Was Olenka translated? Uh, so Alenka hadn't been translated either. And this was interesting because then I did do some research and I found out that they hadn't been translated. Only one short story had been translated from people from Bloomington. And that was in an out-of-print journal. And then I just decided, I guess, uh, with Norman's encouragement, because then Norman one day said, do you want to meet Babudi? And then you should ask permission and translate the stories. And that was sort of an impetus because I tend to be sort of maybe, I, it doesn't look like it from the outside. But I tend to be like a, oh, what if? Oh, no, that's too hard. I don't know. It seems too daunting. You know, he seems very famous. I would have to get permission. <laughs> I don't know how to go about that. I don't, you know, but then that was the impetus. And so we flew to Surabaya and met him in person to seek his blessing, I guess, for going ahead with the translation project and finding a publisher. Right. And so also going through your mind when you're thinking, I love these stories, were you thinking these are stories that... I know an English-speaking audience will enjoy. Was that kind of part of your thinking at that point? Or yeah, absolutely. Like, you'd enjoyed them, so you who wouldn't? Yes, absolutely. And that actually was the first response, you know, like, they're so cool, who wouldn't enjoy them? And it was only actually afterwards, when I started this project, that I began to get this strange inkling just from remarks from other people that I was like, oh, what happens if they don't enjoy them because they're not Indonesian enough? And that was something that honestly, when I was reading it, hadn't even really occurred to me. And I don't know why, because like I'd liked the story so much. Hmm. I guess a non-Indonesian speaker might come to it, go, oh, it's an Indonesian author. Therefore, as you've said in your introduction to this book, you know, you have expectations of it. And you talk about this in your intro where you you say that in a way this book is going to provide some trouble or maybe be a contradiction for some readers about, you know, what they expect Indonesian literature to be, right? So you mentioned People from Bloomington is set in Bloomington, Indiana. And so there's not necessarily any Indonesian character that we can identify in it, right? Yeah, that's right. And even though there's one very fleeting mention of the narrator being a foreign student. That's in the story Joshua Karabish. But actually, all of the other stories are meant to be 
from the perspective of Americans. And Woody Dharma, I think in the preface, says this directly, right? So there have been readers recently who've read the collection and said like, oh, well, this is actually a very Indonesian perspective of what America would be like. Or like, oh, I could relate to this as an Indonesian student living in college town, my own experience. So on the face of it, right, like these are supposed to be purely American stories and arguably in Joshua Karabish. You have no clue until the very end. It's just a very short mention. And that is a little different from, let's say, the short stories of Umar Khayyam, where I think some of them are just about Americans. And then there are others that have an Indonesian character. When you talk about how you think that this might trouble some, particularly you mentioned Western readers, you know, when they encounter this as Indonesian literature, and I'm doing little quotation marks, <laughs> what do you think the expectations are that Western readers have? Yeah. So I have found, I guess, just from my experience being a literary translator and then maybe also being an author of Asian background, Chinese Indonesian background, like there is, I think, a tendency for, I guess, Western readers to look to writing from Asia and then, you know, specifically from specific countries like the Philippines or Thailand or Indonesia or Korea as a sort of lens into that culture or country or tradition. So it becomes like a form of armchair travel, I guess. And obviously it has a long history, right, of, you know, of such things, you know, from like the old colonial travelogues, grand histories, which document everything to stories that are set in the far-flung Orient, right? All of those things. Then fiction becomes a way of traveling when you can't travel, right? I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with this per se, but one then begins to see, I guess, what is more the norm and what is acceptable and what is not acceptable or what, what is, I guess, expected, yeah. So when it comes to going to a publisher and proposing a book or a translation of a book, how do you do that? How do you get around that expectation? And I guess they've kind of got market-driven commercial realities to deal with also. Yeah, that's right. And the funny thing about that, right, is that this expectation creates a niche, right? So I think it's an easy niche, right? You're like, oh, look at this book. It's set in Indonesia. And, you know, you can learn about Indonesian history, but also it creates a ghettoization in a way, right? So like, you're not looking at the larger things this book may have to say about, I don't know, the human story in general. And as a former academic, I am a bit cynical about those things, but there is a literary element to literature that isn't captured when we start just looking at it as a um, distillation or microcosm of its larger historical, cultural, social context, right? So I think there there's something that's lost there. Yeah, exactly. Right. So... People from Bloomington, it's not unique. As you said, there's other Indonesian writers who have written stories, not in Indonesia and not in, you know, this kind of realist framing. Why do you think that, for example, Budi Dharma had not been translated more widely before? Yeah, so this is a question, actually, when I was doing research to see if the short story collection had been translated. I asked someone who heads up a nonprofit foundation and publisher devoted specifically to translating Indonesian in literature. And yeah, this this was interesting because he said that, you know, like, because uh, this publisher had actually released a collection of short stories by Budi Dharma in translation. It's called Conversations, um, and it's translated by Andy Fuller. And so I had asked why this particular collection, Oralenka, um, which I hadn't read at that point, um, hadn't been translated. And the response was, I guess, that the works ring false in English, even though that they're humorous, you know, even, um, and, and are fine in Indonesian. But I think this was such a sort of underwhelming a- appraisement of 
a short story collection that I had found personally very interesting and, and exciting and that I had really liked that I had thought like, oh, that would be sad if that were the case, you know, if that were the response for, for a translation when it was published. But it did kind of make me want to translate it all the more. Because I, I guess I was trying to think like, what does that mean that the works ring false or that it rings false in English? Is it discounting the work, especially in an age where, you know, like there's been so many wars about and, and disputes about who can write about what. And the argument is always that somehow human nature is universal and that the writer has this imagination that is able to travel untrammeled. So to discount an Indonesian writer's experiences based on his six years living in that time. And especially, you know, think about the 70s, right? It's not like us now where we're still kind of half living here, half living there. You know, you can keep ties with home pretty easily, right? So there you're kind of like plunged into it. And somehow to say that that rang false also didn't really sit easily with me. So um, in a sense, I think that gave me a greater awareness of what I could potentially be up against and what the book could potentially be up against. But it also provided this very strong, I guess, personal motivation to want to not champion the book, but to have the book to somehow prove prove that wrong. Yeah, prove that it doesn't ring false when you translate it into English. So go back to when you flew to Surabaya and you met with would be and did you talk about that issue with him at all or about I didn't because um that came up later and because I don't it's in a way not his concern because he wrote a really great short story collection what we did do though because I worked with the agent the agent who I who I usually work with uh, Jayapriya Vasudevan she's based in Bangalore in India so she also became agent for Bhatbudi and Nora Publishing, who owns the foreign language rights to the book. So we had to get permission from them as well, as well as Bhatbudi. And she was putting together the proposal. And um, I usually help out a lot in that aspect, especially as a translator, because, you know, she can't necessarily read the original work herself. So putting together a sample from the book, but also a description. And also Jayapriya had asked, you know, oh, can you ask Babudi if he wants to say a few paragraphs just on the book that he would like to convey to a potential English language publisher. So we did include that in the proposal as well. And that actually gave a lot of clues to how we should pitch the book, because I think until then we were trying to figure out how to pitch it. And you learn, unfortunately, that in in the publishing world, like how to pitch it is quite important. And I didn't want to pitch it as, yeah, like it couldn't be an Indonesian work from Indonesia, right? No. And about Indonesia, right? Like it couldn't be like, oh, this is, will provide you insight into Indonesia because it doesn't. Right? Yeah. And you didn't even go like foreign student in that Western setting. Exactly. But those would be antithetical to the spirit of the work. So I think we were trying to locate what the spirit of the work was. And I think at first I was like, maybe it's sort of like a reverse oriental gaze, you know, like that. But actually it's not. And this was, you know, sort of the epiphany when Abudi sent the paragraphs. I think he quoted a Rudyard Kipom that East is East and West is West, right? Which already shows just how cosmopolitan his thinking, his mindset, his, his frame of literary reference was. It's like very enormous. And, you know, he said, but this is not about that. This is not about East and East and West is West. And he said, in my experience, I spent a lot of time in the United States and traveled and spent time in friends' homes and things like that. And to me, I found that human nature is the same as it is in many places. And then that actually provided a really good, like, oh, that's it. That's it. Even though I think a lot of times in the literary world, and I I mentioned this in the introduction, 
there's this tendency to be like, oh yeah, you know, like the only people who say that human nature is universal are people who are like looking for an excuse to exploit other cultures and and write about them because they don't want to admit that there are actually like deep differences with how humans are in different parts of the world. But this was a case in which he is actually saying that, and this is what the stories are about and predicated on. So that was very useful, actually, because that changed the whole frame in which we cast these stories. And I think that actually did get the essence of it. And this is partly from Intan references this also in her preface, but, you know, like the Surat Kepercayaan Gelang Gelang, where, you know, there was this whole generation of Indonesian intellectuals that were saying, we are heirs to world culture, right? And you see Pak Budi and, you know, his writing coming out of that heritage as well. He was on a Ford Foundation scholarship, right? He was on a Fulbright scholarship. Let's leave the political implications of that aside, but basically very much influenced by and having that in mind, this idea of like a sort of universal human nature. Yeah, absolutely is how it comes through when you read these stories. They're American characters, but actually I didn't see them as particularly American when I was reading the stories. Although, you know, the places are evocative of like small town, university towns in America, but yeah, if you hadn't been to those places, absolutely could have been anywhere. So you had those concerns. Do you think that that's dissipated since people have read these stories now in translation? Yeah, um, I don't know. I've actually been really not pleasantly surprised. I don't want to say that. It's not necessarily surprising. But um, I received a, a lot of like, there were a lot of reviews and podcast interviews that I had with podcast hosts that were specifically by people from Bloomington, like, yeah, from Indiana and from Bloomington. And they were like, oh, yeah, I saw that this short story collection is about Bloomington. And you know, I've been reviewed it. And they're white American and just picked it up. And there's been other, like, you know, responses as well from people who I think, you know, picked up this book who wouldn't necessarily, I think, just my assumption, wouldn't necessarily pick up a book by an Indonesian writer and picked it up because it was like about, you know, Bloomington, Indiana. Exactly. Or just picked it up because they saw it and were just interested by the premise and said like, yeah, these are really cool stories or like these are really um, interesting stories. So well, that's, that's bang on. Like, isn't that like exactly what you, you guys were kind of hoping? Yeah. And I think that's exactly actually like what, you know, a lot of Indonesian writers, even if they're writing about Indonesia, are hoping, right? Or like what I write, of, you know, like I'm hoping for even if I set my novels in, you know, Southeast Asia, because it's like. You don't want just like people who are interested in yeah niche readers. Yeah, niche readers. You just want yeah. like people to enjoy your good story. You know exactly, um, and that yeah. made me really very happy. Actually, yeah. You have excellent notes in the book, also, um, where you've got references that Pak Budi has given to you, or you yourself and your research has uncovered, where you're pointing our attention to the many, many, many times and occasions that the author is referencing other literature. And as you said, his knowledge of world literature was huge and runs throughout the stories also. I would encourage everyone to read Intan's preface and your introduction. But, you know, the fact that he wrote his PhD on Jane Austen, it's extraordinary and awesome. Yeah, no, and I think you can kind of see that sort of sly humour creeping in a bit in, in the stories. And so you mentioned Budi Dharma himself played a pretty pivotal role in how you framed and pitched the project to publishers. But how did you finally land that deal with Penguin hmm. So this is interesting because, as I've mentioned, I work with an agent for all of my writing and a lot of my translations. So I think one, only one out of the five books I've translated, the deal was not through my agent. But with the translations especially, we work 
very closely because she's not able to read the work in the original. When I told my agent about this book, I guess I was very fortunate that she was so excited about it because she does trust my judgment. We have a very good close working relationship together. I do wonder actually if it makes a big difference that she is Indian and based in India. So I think she also brokers a lot of deals in like the publishing world in India with Indian authors. And so I think maybe not necessarily having those same expectations of Indonesian literature because also, you know, she has to deal with the same expectations that people have of Indian literature. So she's really supportive and I think was also very specific and, and clever. Uh, what is it? Strategic in how she um, targeted publishers. So for Penguin Classics, she also knew that the editor there, Elda Rotor, so she's from the Philippines and she's been like very supportive of literature from Asia, adding those to the Penguin Classics canon and, and series. And so she had thought like that might be a, a good fit. I think, and this was after, I won't go into many details, but this was after like she had approached an editor and she had thought it would be a good fit. And the editor had said something along the lines of basically had those expectations of Indonesian literature and gave very negative feedback about the prospects of the work, which of course then made my agent really mad. So basically, you know, me and my agent were just fueled by rage for this project, for this project and like saying like, well, we'll just show them. But I think it, it, it was, it was good, you know, and when you think about it, right, like that's what it it took then like a was, lot of passion like yeah, and passion, but also to find it a home and it took people really genuinely championing the literary work for for what it was you know like and wanting to find like a, a good home for it what I do note is that my agent is someone from India right the editor we pitched to is a woman from the Philippines right so I think for in this case, right, I think representation matters and not just representation, but basically people who are willing to defy those expectations or maybe who don't have those same expectations. That really does matter. I think it just showed what can happen when we remove those expectations. Yeah, it's a lot of things that come together and that you continue to drive. So awesome. Congratulations for doing it. And Tiffany, I haven't properly congratulated you on the Pen Translation Prize that you've received for this book such a huge achievement. Congrats. I guess, you know, given this conversation we're having about Western expectations of Indonesian literature and the underrepresentation of Indonesian literature in translation, we can say that is, is absolutely the case. You know, I know it's only small examples, but you've had some really great success with Norman Erickson Passaribu's writing and now this one. Has that changed your outlook? Are you feeling more hopeful for where Indonesian literature in translation is going and, and the, mm. dare we say the market for it? Yeah, I think I think it's like tempered optimism. So I do worry that these are just token moments, you know, and we'll just go back to the norm, right? Like, I think that can be very easy. Oh, good, you know, this, it'll change everything and then it doesn't change everything. Um, we've done our, you know, like one way to look at it would be the pessimistic way would be, you know, like the establishment has done its acknowledgement and nod to Indonesian literature, and then it'll just move on. But I don't think so necessarily. For example, like Eka Kurniawan's, the, the success of like Jantik Mituluka and Lelaki Harima, which was, you know, also nominated for the Booker Prize. That did open up, I, I think, more interest in Indonesian literature. And we see, I think, certainly a greater volume of different trade publishers publishing Indonesian literature than we certainly have in the past. So I guess we'll just see what happens. My hope is I started 
sort of thinking about, I'd like to just have more translators working and more translators being published and more Indonesian writing being published in general. I feel like volume is 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 a good thing with with a diversity of publishers and a diversity of translators. I think that's how things will change. You know, I don't want to become like the bottleneck. I don't want to become like that moment. And then after I'm like incapacitated or die, then it like, you know, <laughs> nothing happens. Like, I just don't want that. I don't, you know, so I'm hoping that this is the start of something. Play it forward. Not, play it forward. Yeah. yeah. And not just, that's it. Right. And so given that, do you think that there is an emerging or a community of, of writers, particularly younger writers, who are already thinking about a global audience for their work in ways perhaps that, you know, Dharma did not, as you noted, when he was writing in the 1970s and 80s? Are they, and the ones that are writing in Indonesian, are they already thinking, I want to find the translation opportunities as soon mm. as I can? Is that something that's top yeah. of mind? Yeah, I think um, just from my limited experience and encounters, like when I have talked to emerging uh, Indonesian writers or Indonesian readers in general, like I, I do feel like they are more aware of the global and, you know, like wanting to, to go global, I guess. I am a bit annoyed that it has to happen in a context where they're so dependent on like the Western publishing world and its its whims and fancies. <laughs> Um, so that is that is annoying. That's the only thing. Um, so I think there yeah, is. We're all that, annoyed by that. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's that global awareness, but at the same time, it's kind of like it feels sad in a way that I don't know how much power you have is in their hands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is. Uh, you know, I know some authors who've just gone ahead and self-published, and they're really like, you know, it's an online-driven kind of thing and yeah you know and certainly there's um even english translations being published by uh indonesian publishers as well i haven't forgotten that you are a writer and you've mentioned it but how do you balance your translation work tiffany and your writing i know that now you're in writing mode right mm-hmm. yeah so i think before i would try to do optimistically like oh, i'll write in the morning and i'll translate in the afternoon um and that kind of it kind of works when I have to, but it's definitely not the most ideal way. So I think it, when the most ideal is if I can structure it so that I focus on a translation project purely for a period of time and then focus on my own writing. Yeah. So right now I'm in a writing period just because I'm in between projects. I know that won't always be the case. So I am aware that I need to write fast. <laughs> and, and you yourself, you're writing in English right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. And uh, do you ever think, oh, I'm just going to suddenly start writing in Indonesian or it's not, it's not your natural? No, no. My Indonesian, I don't think is like, is definitely not. Um, I would never, for example, translate from English to Indonesian. It would just be laughable. Um, because, <laughs> I doubt that. But. Because, you know, like, um, it's just so different. The literary sense, you have to be so versatile and so nuanced with your, with your language. I don't think, you know, like, no, it's never, never occurred to me. Um, right, right, right. So, yeah. But but the fact that you can do something in the morning and something in the afternoon, that's pretty amazing, actually. Does well, I say that, but I just flounder when I do that. I basically just do, like, <laughs> a small, like, paragraph of each and then, like, get upset that everything is moving very slowly. <laughs> right. But it, is it a nice balance that you've got? Like, one kind of fuels the other in a way or creates hmm. energy for the other? I think so. Um, the nice thing about translation is that you get out of your own head I think and into someone else's head 
it's kind of like writing, but the the basic material is already there. You know, like you don't have to come up with your own stuff, which can be exhausting. So like, you know, when you're coming up with the whole, your own story and own characters, just like out of, um, you know, like it's, it's just completely like, where do I even start? So you can get kind of overwhelmed by that. But translation yeah. has a nice and, rhythm and, to it. And as you've said before, I've heard you say before, like, you know, writing is so solitary, whereas your translation, you're, it's a collaborative thing, isn't it? You work really closely with your writer. With yes, your, yes. Writer so most of the time I work quite closely. Um, with my writer and it's not yeah. so lonely um yeah. so it's more fun really too because you've got someone to bounce things off yes yes perhaps a bit too much because I tend to be like if I if if um you say like oh yes I'm willing to be bounced off you know I will just pepper you with like so I think um even you know with with um Babudi we were talking about the the translation of the title and I think like I just inundated him with so many like what about this one what about this and then he would be finally I think finally he was like I think you should decide one I'm okay I'm glad you didn't run every sentence by him or that would have taken you like decades I think I may have actually I don't know maybe not but um you know it wasn't a source of like thinking for a very long time because you just wanted the exact right you know well exactly and that's how much work and you know expertise Tiffany goes into translation which is you know the other thing that you know we really should should um congratulate you on and anyone who does this really difficult work which is translating translating anything but literary work it's a difficult thing and as much as as you're saying let's expand the community and have more translators and and more translation I guess that's one of the barriers isn't it yeah that is one of the main barriers right now um because you know there's a lot of other skills like hidden skills with translation it's not just the translation it's also willing willingness to network involved as as i've talked about like strategizing with the pitch and how to describe it and what to focus on and providing a good like summary or synopsis um those are all like really difficult those are all layers as well um but you know it's been really gratifying to get the Pen Translation Prize. The book was shortlisted also for the New South Wales Premier's uh, Translation Prize. Results pending, so we'll see. But, you know, it's been very, very encouraging, I think. Um, Absolutely. And so for those of us, I mean, everyone's going to rush out and buy people from Bloomington, but give us some tips. Where should we look if we want to follow particular publishers that you think are doing a great job or writers or a community where we can tap in to Mm. what's going on? Yeah, so I think um, there are like Indonesian-specific ones, but I think a lot of interesting stuff has been being done by, I guess, just publishers in general who are interested in in Asia, including, and that includes Southeast Asia, so not just, you know, um, one or two. Um, I'll just name a few off the top of my head, I guess. So, you know, the book, like, okay, so I'm just going to publicize Instagram, even though that already marks me as old, because I think Instagram is out and TikTok is in or something like that. Uh, No, TikTok's um, on the way out. Haven't you been like following? Yeah, but that's just because of political stuff. Like, you know, content, you know, like uh, what people like wise, TikTok is in, but maybe TikTok is out again. I don't know. Anyway, I can't keep track. But um, Safe space, Instagram. It's okay. Yeah. So I tend to use Instagram just to keep my, I guess, to keep a tab on what's trending. And that may not necessarily be good, but if you have no idea what's trending to begin with, it's also a good place to start. So 
There are um, some book clubs that are specifically devoted to Southeast Asian work or tend to like, you know, gravitate more towards those and, and Asian work in general. So a literacy book club, so Litera S-E-A capitals book club. They've been doing like really cool work. Southeast Asian Lit Circle, I think that's S-E-A Lit Circle, diversity book clubs, but diversity with a T-E-A at the end, like a tea you drink book club. Mm. They do really good discussions, um, they're, and they're Indonesia-based. Um, ID Writers is good to follow, Yes, um, just for Indonesian okay. writer stuff. There's a an Insta book grammar, I don't know if that's what you call it, called Rice Twice Thrice. She, I think is... Chinese Filipino but she reads you know like a lot of books and that includes Southeast Asia and, and Asian and you kind of follow the rabbit trail from there like any good researcher you know you click on that and then you see like who they're networked with and I think that's a good way of, of following things so I would say like it's better to cast your net wider to do Southeast Asian and Asian stuff yeah. if you're interested in following Indonesia because the net will usually catch those kinds of things also and I think also it's good to build a regional awareness as well dalang publishing is someone who's not on instagram or social media or anything like that that's a small california-based indie press that Mm. does focus on indonesian literature in translation so definitely get off instagram too and every now and then visit that website and i think they have a newsletter and a blog so oh brilliant well thank you so much i'm gonna follow all of those now on my insta and thank you so much tiffany for chatting with us and telling us about the book, but also about this journey to bring these stories to non-Indonesian speaking readers and all power to you. And hopefully we'll just see more and more of this. And I'll put some of those links on our blog so people can easily find them. Thank you so much. No, not at all. Thanks for having me again. That was Tiffany Zhao. Tiffany has received several awards for her translation work, including most recently the 2023 Penn Translation Prize for Buri Utomo's People from Bloomington, published by Penguin Classics. She's also the translator of Norman Erickson Pasaribu's Happy Stories Mostly, which won the Republic of Consciousness Prize, an annual British literary prize, and was long-listed for the prestigious International Booker Prize. Tiffany's most recent novel, The Majesties, was long-listed for the Ned Kelly Award. Talking Indonesia will return on the 13th of April, hosted by Tito Ambio. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.